from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, nuggets of gold from Green Blue's Green Guru, why Colgate is putting an internal price on water, what does it take to make CDP's A-list, and why the price is right for a carbon tax. It's tax reform, sustainability style, this week on 350. It's December 1st, 2017. Oh my God, it's December. How did we get here? Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me as always is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hello, Joel. How is everything in New Jersey? Excellent. The leaves are finally falling, which means we're in leaf cleanup mode. (laughs) It finally seems to be a little fall-like, although it's almost winter. Um, and I'm cozying in, if you will, and doing a lot of year-end thinking. Oh, boy. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's been part of the mode as we all in the editorial team, and in fact, the whole Green Biz team has dived into our 11th annual State of Green Business Report, which will be out um, next month. And uh, yeah, it's been a chore. It's always a, a joyful chore, but a chore nonetheless. I always feel like I'm thinking in the future. <laughs> it's just uh, we're getting ready for the, the that report and our uh, Green Biz Conference in in February. And but it it, it I do enjoy this uh, exercise, quite frankly, because it, it always helps me um, figure out what I need to follow up on as well. You know what what trends we we need to kind of look back at and and figure you know how, how, where do we get to and. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful reflective time of the year for for every good journalist and look forward to as well. I mean, part of the the exercise and why the the you know looking at the future is that we name as we have for uh, the ten previous years the ten trends that uh, sustainability executives and professionals need to think about for twenty the year ahead twenty eighteen in this case. And they're really there. Some of them are one or you know eighteen to twenty four month trends. Um, and it's really, I have to say, one of the more enjoyable and challenging exercises that we go through. Like, what, what are those trends? How can we look around the corner just enough to see what's coming, um, and not only do that, but also not be the same trends we talked about last year? Because these, most of these trends are, you know, long in coming. I mean, we talked about the circular economy three years ago, and frankly cool that we saw it three years ago before it was talked about by so many uh, organizations and companies. But that's still obviously not here. It's it's a long, probably multi-year, possibly generational ramp. But it's really interesting to think, what are those things that, you know, people should be looking at and, and aren't necessarily? And that's what's fun. And, you know, we're not going to spoil the surprise. We like to keep it kind of under wraps for uh, our release, which is on January 16th. But it is fun to do that. And then I always have fun writing the intro to the trend, which is its own thousand words, sort of like, where are we? And suffice to say, thinking about that for 2017 and looking ahead to 2018 is probably differenter than any other year. So 
that was a fun exercise as well. Right. I have to say that the, one of the pieces I wrote last year for uh, the 2017 report was about blockchain. Your favorite topic, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite topic is that I'm still trying to get my brain wrapped around it, but I know that this is an important thing that I really have to understand. And it did turn out to be quite a discussion point this year um, for, for everything from um, you know, the energy market right, to supply chain transparency. And uh, I do feel like uh, we're just scratching the surface of what will will be made possible by this you know from this technology i just I have to say i just I just as a sort of a random thing i got one of those fun classic you know weird pitches in my email box this morning um and it was about how there was so much bitcoin activity these days that um it was starting to become a uh, power issue <laughs> there are too many power plants being dedicated to uh Oh, bit, Bitcoin the, transactions. The, the amount of energy it's taking to exactly keep, keep the <laughs> keep the bitcoins flowing. You got. Boy, it. did they flow this week on Tuesday? They hit ten thousand uh, dollars each, I guess, and you know something like nine hundred percent in under a year, I believe. Uh, I don't have the facts in front of me, but um, yeah, it's amazing. But good on you, Heather, for seeing that. Not that specifically, but the whole uh, blockchain phenomenon coming uh, well over a year ago where we could write this in the 2017 Data Green Business Report. That's that's what we pride ourselves in doing. So we also pride ourselves every week in getting to the Week in Review. So to get things started, Joel, I have water on the brain. <laughs> Okay, do tell. <laughs> there was a great, uh, uh, there's a report out of the, the CDP, the formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project this week about water and um, the role that it's playing in corporate sustainability plans. You've heard about companies setting an internal price on carbon. Well, now they're starting to do it with water. Companies like Nestle, Burberry, Kellogg's, Colgate, um, you know, even people like L'Oreal. There are an increasing number of multinationals looking at what they pay for water and figuring out if they're paying enough. Like, will those prices increase, right? Um, so just in the last year, the number of companies uh, disclosing through to CDP on their water issues has jumped 40%. Um, and, and there's been quite an uptick uh, uh, in the ones that are setting a price on, on water, if you will. And so the internal price is, uh, as it has been with energy or carbon, where companies sort of does some, in effect, some mock trading internally. They have a budget in which they have to uh, maybe uh, reduce that budget every year so they use water more efficiently, but they're actually looking at it through the uh, through the lens of, of dollars and cents in terms of how much they're spending and, and trying to figure out if we had to pay this uh, to 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 the market because water is notoriously underpriced in terms of of what companies tend to pay for it you know how how could we uh you know can we use it more efficiently how do we monetize this so that we're under, actually thinking about this in the the only language that really matters to us in companies which is of course money yeah so the piece is by Kate Lamb she's the head of water security at CDP, and the, the title is Why Colgate and Nestle Are Setting an Internal Price on Water, there were um, 53 companies out of the, the sample that CDP looked at. That was about 7% that are doing this. Um, and uh, you know, it was interesting. One of the examples was beverage giant Diago. 
Um, and they, they do this to help their plants anticipate and plan for the financial impact of, of price increases or tariff increases. So they created a tool internally. And so I think this is something to watch. So one of the things that really surprised me about this, I mean, I understand why Nestle would do this because they're one of the largest, if not the largest uh, water bottler in the world and Kellogg's, which is in food and egg, but Burberry, I mean, I think of them as the closest thing they have to do with water is raincoats. <laughs> but 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 that's but I think that's interesting in that, um, uh, you know, L'Oreal and Toyota, I mean, companies that are not associated with water, and it just starts to show you that that water is being seen as a as a risk factor for companies, much as carbon was. And if you look at, you know, what has preceded this, the companies putting a price on carbon, that ramped up much faster. Uh, to now, than, now more than 500 companies in the CDP survey every year, uh, at least in 2017, are putting uh, some using some kind of internal carbon pricing to illustrate their the how climate change has become a concern and a line item in public companies' budgeting and strategic planning. To go to the Burberry thing for a moment, Joel, I mean, that is indicative of the fashion industry in general, right? So anyone that has spends a lot of time dyeing fabric or, um, you know, processing, and that, that's where that's going to come in, the manufacturing process. So that'll go back into the, the supply chain quite deeply, I believe. So I, I heard a, a remarkable statistic a number of years ago from someone who works with... Um, Indian supply chain companies for uh, American and I guess Western brands, and, he, and and I don't have any I don't have any documentation on this, so this may not be entirely accurate, but but you get the point. He said that the amount of water it takes to produce a man's shirt or any shirt for uh, domestic for export to uh, Western countries is eight times more than the water used for a shirt used domestically. Why is that? Color matching, dye matching. In other words, to get the exact same blue or green or whatever, color requires uh, so much more water and, and, and getting the, I don't know exactly the process, but it just is an amazing amount of water. I mean, to which I thought, by the way, why wouldn't somebody take advantage of that? Patagonia say, you know, a campaign saying our shirts don't match. Um, they don't need to match. You're only going to buy one of them. And by the way, why would you want to look like everybody else? Um, I don't know. I think that's a, there's a marketing opportunity there for someone. But but that shows that, you know, how much water, how we're thinking, starting to think differently about water than we ever did. And meanwhile, our other water correspondent, or one of our great friends and, and true experts in this field, Will Sarney, had a, a piece on uh, water stewardship. He, he writes a regular column called Liquid Assets. And this time he wrote about, well, what did he write about, Heather? So it, it really, it's, it's a great companion piece to the, to the CDP report, which is, um, it's about water stewardship and it's about you, you guessed it, accountants and how and the role that the financial planning will pay in, in the water stewardship strategies. So, you know, it points to the need for companies to better uh, account for the true cost. Um, so he writes uh, from the perspective of some, some certifications that are coming to play. So like recommendations for how you do this, it's, there's a, a something called the 
international water stewardship standard. It is um, being shepherded by by the Alliance for Water Stewardship, and so it's 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 basically um, you know one of these guidelines. It helps organizations understand whether or not they could be vulnerable to to water costs um, increasing in much in the future because of the the shortages and so forth that are are being inspired by changing weather patterns, by climate change, and so forth. So he writes about um, that, as well as uh, sort of the need for collective action. So communities needing to get better aligned with the corporate citizens that are there in order to be more transparent, to understand um, where things are going to go and get working on this now. And meanwhile, from water, let's go back to carbon. We had a piece... uh by Jennifer uh, Gale as the head of environment and energy at something called The Conversation in France called The Price is Right for a Corporate Carbon Tax. And it's a Q&A with uh, Nicholas Stern, who became uh, renowned for uh, a report he did in 2006 that uh, at the time was um, something we're all seeing now, that the dramatic but foreseeable consequences of climate change and uh, the, the Stern report uh, became one of the landmark sort of benchmarks of, of where we are and where we probably are going if we don't make some course correction. And um, he spoke uh, earlier last month in early November at the Violi Institute's uh, conference in Oxford, England, on um, resource availability in a low-carbon world. And um, Jennifer did a Q&A with him um, looking at, at you know, carbon pricing and, and why that's become central to this whole topic and what it'll take to get some kind of carbon pricing. I mean, it's it's so many people on both in the U.S., uh, both uh, on the right and the left, see that carbon pricing is probably the best solution using market forces to to address climate change, probably better than cap and trade, even though that seems to be working here in California. Um, Republicans seem to be afraid to talk about it publicly, but the you know scuttlebutt is that there's a bunch of them who are interested in this, and at some point uh, it, it it may come out as part of a some grand climate solution if the uh, United States of America ever decides to take one on. Uh, but this is a really interesting topic, and and how we think about that, uh, it, it's it's a pretty good Q and A. I highly recommend it. Yeah, and I think it's all very timely because of just the activity going on. There's some, even though the United States isn't doing anything really at the federal level, I think there's something like uh, I don't know forty different countries that are working on trading systems, as you mentioned before, that could really inspire companies to have carbon pricing. And uh, lots of states and, and cities in, in the United States as well. And then, of course, the big one is China, right? So they've been working on their marketplace for, for a number of years. And I, the last indications I read were that they were imminently going to launch that. So, you know, they're not talking about a tax or anything in China. But um, if China starts uh, working on this and making it an, you know, an interesting economic opportunity, then... Um, I think you'll see more companies get involved. And, uh, you know, the big question, even with you do a price of carbon, is, well, what should that price be? Um, and, uh, you know, right now, a lot of the schemes that are out there put it, you know, 10 or $20 or rising up to 30 or 40 or maybe $50. And in the report that Nicholas Stern published back in May, uh, he argued that the carbon price should be between 40 and $80 per ton in 2020. 
and go up to as much as $100 a ton in 2030. And, and uh, he talks a little bit about how they got to those prices in, in the interview. But that's the, the trillion-dollar question, really, is how, you know, once you put a, decide to put a price on carbon, what should that price be, and where does it move in, in a way that does what the whole point of the exercise is, which is gradually ramps down the amount of carbon emissions in the economy. Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts. So I was in D.C. a couple of weeks ago and uh, attended a two-hour event put on by the Washington Post called A World in Balance, Solutions for Sustainability. Had uh, Lisa Jackson from Apple there and Brendan Shane, the regional director for North America for C40 Cities, and Malcolm Wolf from Advanced Energy Economy and a few others, and a woman named Sophia Mendelssohn, who's the head of sustainability at JetBlue Airways. And they had an interesting conversation, and I have to say that the, the whole event, uh, with all due respect to the Washington Post, uh, you know, it was kind of what you'd expect when the mainstream media interviews uh, sustainability professionals, which is to say it was competent professional interview, but you know, I have to say not all that insightful. But there were a couple of bright moments, both from Sophia Mendelssohn from JetBlue, uh, who was refreshingly opinionated and a little contentious. So... After the event was over, I pulled her aside and uh, we had a brief conversation. Sophia, you said something really interesting on the panel. You kind of bristled when the panel started talking about making the business case and the financial case for sustainability. What, what did you say? What was going on there? Do I bristle? Is it that obvious? I have a pet peeve when we sustainability folks talk about the business case for sustainability as if it's not obvious or as if there's some kind of inherent contradiction between the concept of sustainability and money. This is what I call the hangover from the early 2000s. We are allowing folks who very understandably don't know that business and the movement of sustainability has moved on to continue to frame the conversation as long-term environmental thinking versus money. And the role of folks like myself in business is to show that those are inherently the same thing. But it still is an obvious question because why do this and, uh, you know, does it have uh, address basic business fundamentals? So is that a bad question to be asking or is it really in the context of prove to me why you're doing this stuff? I understand why people ask it and clearly we still have more proving to do. I think that this, this idea of sustainability is out to save the polar bears versus the shareholder is something we need to work on. And one major way we're doing that is instead of just talking about how 
business is bad because it contributes to climate change. You shouldn't fly because it gives you a greenhouse footprint. Is thinking about climate change as a business risk and a possible business benefit. So it's a risk to how we run an airline if things are unpredictable and are changing all the time. It could also be a benefit if we're aware of how consumer preferences might change and how we can work, we can quickly adapt to those new preferences. So it's a false choice. And the other false choice you, you talked about and uh, on the panel, which I, I really found kind of refreshing, mm -hmm. was was about this premium, paying a premium. What, mm -hmm. what, what are consumers willing yeah. to do? That's another one of these questions yeah. that's been around yeah. since I've been around in this scene a long time. And uh, you didn't like that question either. <laughs> I have been called a cheerful bulldog before, um, and I guess I pulled my bulldog face when people talk about how much more should we be paying for sustainability. And we're at a sustainability summit right now. It's a sustainability discussion. And just like sustainability, the luxury industry has luxury summits and luxury com conversations about luxury. No one goes into a Louis Vuitton store going, I can't believe you're expecting consumers to pay more. I, of course they're paying more. That's part of the brand. There's there's clearly a subset of society that wants to pay more for their products. So when it comes to a, quote, sustainable product, it seems like if we charge more, it's proving that sustainability isn't acceptable to mass purchasing. And if we don't, then we're not making the business case. And you wouldn't say, how much extra would you pay for safety Exactly. As an airline, safety is our number one value. We don't think about safety as an option. Likewise, when we're thinking long term, we don't think about smart natural resource consumption as an option. Thanks, Sophia. It's uh, really great to hear your voice. It was kind of refreshing in this panel. Thank you. Shortly before Thanksgiving, we published the latest ranking from the CDP, their Climate A-List ranking. And I spoke with our senior writer, Cassandra Sweet, about some very unusual companies on that list. Here's that conversation. So, tis the season for lists. Lots of year-end research coming out and reports from various NGOs and consulting groups in the sustainability world. And we are looking at one of the most controversial lists out there from the CDP, the, formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project. It's their Climate A-List. So Cassandra, you've spent some time unpacking the, the people on this list, the companies. First of all, what is this list? What is it, what is it supposed to um, uh, connote or, or, or showcase? Hi, Heather. Um, so CDP's Climate A-List um, is the list that is the result of a lot of work that they do throughout the year where they survey, they, they send out inquiries to, gosh, I think it's like tens of thousands of companies. I could be wrong. It's at least thousands of the world's largest companies. Um, and they've been doing this for about a decade or more. And they send out a survey asking companies you know, are you aware of climate change? How aware are you of climate change? What are you doing to address climate change? You know, do you have plans to cut your emissions? Have you cut your emissions? So they ask all these questions. 
And they do this on behalf of the world's investors. I mean, that's really why they do it. So that, uh, you know, primarily institutional investors. So those are, you know, some of the big funds, hedge funds and mutual funds and, you know, the trillions of dollars that gets invested uh, every year. So that those investors have a good idea about what the big companies are doing with regard to climate change and whether they care about it or not and whether they're taking it seriously or not. So that's kind of where this list comes from. Yeah, so you're unpacking this year's list, um, and you uncovered some surprises. So, yeah, oil companies, petrochemical companies. Okay, so tell me what's going on, and, and can we really say that these companies are fighting climate change? So yeah, this this climate A list, you know, it, we're used to seeing companies like Google, Apple, Microsoft, you know, companies that you know for years have said that they are buying renewable energy, they're cutting their energy usage, they're doing all these things, and so lo and behold, there are you know some companies in some very carbon intensive industries, including the oil and gas industry, which is one of the most carbon intensive, of course. There's a big debate over, you know, whether oil should be kept in the ground. There are a lot of debates over fracking and whether that's environmentally sound or not. Uh, and so I was surprised to see uh, an oil and gas exploration and production company. It's called Galp Energia of Portugal. Uh, so they they got an A on their their climate disclosure. What was it that that earned them that? That grade. They take climate change seriously. They set uh, strategy and policy for the business with regards to addressing climate change at the board level. So that's one thing that CDP looks at. How high a level is it that the company makes decisions taking climate change into account? So they get a lot of points for that. Uh, they've also expanded into renewables uh, including solar and wind, um, and they are cutting emissions at their their two refineries in Portugal. Hmm. Yeah, you also highlighted a couple of other companies, so tell me about them. So, yes, uh, Brascom is a Brazilian petrochemical company, one of the biggest petrochemical companies in the world. So they use petroleum product, they use oil to make chemicals that appear in lots of the products that we use from you know, plastic bottles to polypropylene, various consumer and industrial products. Uh, so they are on the climate A list for, for mon- many of the same reasons that uh, the, the Portuguese oil company is. They are concerned about climate on the board level. They have an internal price on carbon that they use to make investment decisions. Uh, but this company is interesting. They're also focused on making more products out of um, biomaterials, primarily sugarcane. So they make ethanol, but now they're trying to make uh, they're trying to replace chemicals that have conventionally been made with um, oil. They're using sugar. Very active area right now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, mining company. That's right. So mining. <laughs> It's kind of counterintuitive that a mining company would be considered a climate leader um, because it's very energy intensive. Uh, you know, it has a big environmental impact, uh, you know, digging deep into the ground. But uh, there is a mining company, Harmony Gold Mining, from South Africa. They produce gold in South Africa and uh, Papua New Guinea. 
and um, they say that they take climate change very seriously. They're uh, cutting emissions through, uh, you know, energy efficiency, and they're also shutting down mines that are carbon intensive. Uh, you know, which I think means mines that use a lot of energy and and probably use a lot of water too. And so they're shifting their strategy to focus on operations that use fewer resources. Any uh, big takeaways from your research? I think uh, all three of these companies said that there are no science-based targets. There are no methodologies for setting science-based emission reduction targets for their industries. So I thought that was interesting. The gold mining company is working on a methodology to set science-based targets. Uh, but I, I think this is an area that that people might want to explore, you know, just kind of the idea that an oil company and that a petrochemical company could set science-based targets and what that would look like. Um, I, I just think it's an open question, so I would expect the CDP to look closer at that. Definitely. Well, these companies have to do something or go away, I suppose, so I... I um... Exactly. Imagine that there will be more focus on this. Thank you for getting the dialogue started. Really appreciate you checking in. Thank you. If you haven't tuned into our weekly book excerpts, we run every Saturday on Green Biz, uh, an excerpt from a book that um, we think you should know about. And they're, they sort of cover the, the spectrum from, they're not all about sustainable business or clean technology. They sort of get into some agriculture or other, you know, a little bit uh, far afield from time to time. But they're all pretty interesting. And um, I hope you check them out. And this week, uh, tomorrow, in fact, we're running an excerpt from uh, a new book by a good, good friend of ours, and I have to say one of the, the, the true pioneers in the field of both corporate social responsibility and corporate uh, sustainability. Dave Stang is uh, now with Campbell Soup, but b- before that he was at Intel, and uh, he's, he's been, he went literally from, from chips to, uh, well, goldfish, which is what Campbell's makes. Um, and uh, But he's really, I think, one of the go-to people that we talk to when we sort of want to understand uh, some some things to get some context. And uh, um, here's a book. Uh, Heather, tell us about it. So it's actually a pair of books that um, Dave wrote with um, his co-author is Catherine Valvoda Smith. She is the executive director of the Boston College Center for Corporate Citizenship. And um, the two of them describe these uh, as companion books, right? So one is, is the Executive's Guide to 21st Century Corporate Citizenship. And it's meant as a piece to help sustainability professionals get the CXOs in their life involved, right? And interested and, and uh, inspired by, by this concept of corporate citizenship. The second book and the more comprehensive one is the 21st Century Corporate Citizenship colon, a practical guide to delivering value to society and your business. So that's quite a mouthful, but what, what the co-authors, um, they, they describe it as a cookbook. It's a practical um, tome, if you will, full of tips on, on, on actions to take. And, and it's not just strategy, but it's tactical um, ideas for how, to, how do you uh, 
implement them. And our, our very own John Davies, Vice President and Senior Analyst, did a, an interview with the two co-authors um, that we've also featured on the Green Biz site this week and, and sort of talks about their motivations for writing the book. And one of the, um, the threads I found particularly fascinating was whether or not sustainability is actually a profession and should it be. And so uh, I thought the comments that the authors had about that, that topic would be particularly intriguing to those of you on this podcast and listening in. And uh, I leave you with their thoughts on that question. You know, good corporate citizenship is about the, how the firm exercises all of its rights, responsibilities, uh, obligations, and privileges across its operations and in society. And no one department can actually ensure that the company is operating in the most ethical, responsible, uh, you know, sustainable way. So, so corporate citizenship is not what happens only in the corporate citizenship department. The, cor- the really effective corporate citizenship professional is extremely good at influencing it. First of all, understanding the business, right? What business are you in? What's the purpose of the business you are in? What's the strategy of the company in terms of how you're going to succeed in your competitive arena? And then given all of those constraints, how can I support my colleagues in the jobs that they have to do um, to create the most ethical, sustainable, socially responsible business, right? If it's one person or even 10 people in a giant company trying to get it all done, inevitably, they're not going to be able to be successful because there's only so much that any one person or any small department can do. The most effective teams are those that really work with their business operations to create the greatest good and the most sustainable prosperity. I think they have to be really well prepared. The most successful corporate citizenship people are those who are very well prepared um, business strategists who are um, careful and thoughtful and deeply engaged in continual learning about our evolving business landscape. So are there professionals who work in corporate citizenship? Absolutely there are. But is there a corporate citizenship profession? I think the requirements of the field are so broad that you couldn't actually probably define one one type of professional. These professions or these professionals exist because there's a vacuum in companies in terms of generating value. Um, and that's why the book is so kind of business focused is that my premise, and I, I don't want to speak for Catherine, but my premise is that this is a value generation that companies are not taking advantage of. You and I know each other long enough, but I mean, so sustainability and, and strategic corporate citizenship are ways to help the company close that gap in terms of value creation, everything from resources to people to impact in society to new ideas and generation and consumer affinity. Whether or not there should be, um, whether or not a company should have to have a separate standalone profession is not, um, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense long term because these people are most likely, um, the way they operate are almost strategic consultants today. The more integrated they are, the better. And you can see examples of people that have created 
integrated organizations by function. And there's lots and lots, hundreds of big, well-known companies that have two or three people in this central thing trying to influence the entire enterprise um, with titles like, you know, manager of corporate citizenship, which is a really tough thing to do. Um, and those are the people we've been trying to help. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our new podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. And uh, we always love to hear from you, your comments and criticisms and whatever you got to say. Green Biz's 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCowell. Thanks for listening.